Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Welcome everybody to the next event in uh, Books That Changed Humanity. I'll start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and paying our respect to the Nongwal people past and present. Uh, and just mentioning a couple of things if I may, if you are interested in evolution and you wouldn't be here if you weren't, we're having a science and humanities uh, occasion. The conversation across the creek on the 21st is on precisely that topic. Uh, and we have another, uh, a number of events like our ad hominem next Monday night, again if you're interested at the University House, where we're looking at the research, uh, at research in the lives of three young ANU researchers. But this evening I've invited the Dean of the College of Arts and Social Sciences, Professor Paul Pickering, to introduce uh, our distinguished speaker, but a very good friend of Paul's, so it was entirely appropriate that he should do so. So thank you, Paul. Thank you, Will, and um, welcome everyone to the Humanities Research Centre, which I think is both our spiritual home, yeah, absolutely. but in uh, a large measure. Um, Ian and I have been friends, collaborators, colleagues, and co-conspirators for too long to remember, I think. Um, I first met him when I was an honours student back in the middle of the last century, and uh, he was uh, an MA student at that time. And thereafter, our careers are sort of crawled along. Well, mine's crawled along. His has <laughs> raised well ahead. Um, His first action was to bowl me in cricket. <laughs> first ball. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to tell that story. We can get there. Um, when they said, oh, uh, Ian's going to talk about uh, a book that changed the world, I had to admit, I thought, well, which book is he going to talk about? Because... He's actually written um, a string of amazing books. His first book with uh, CUP on radical underworld was transformative in the way we thought about early 19th century radical history. Um, and pretty much everything he's done since then has had a significant impact on the way we think about social history and cultural history. And the way that Ian tells stories about the lives of people is a model for all of us, inside and outside the academy, who want to engage with the people of the past, uh, people who themselves have had a significant impact on our lives. So it's with the absolute greatest pleasure, both on behalf of the ANU and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, but also uh, on behalf of myself, to uh, welcome Ian and to invite him to talk to us about one of the books that he's written that's made a, a stellar contribution. Thank you, Paul. Well, thanks, Will. Thanks, Paul. And thank you for coming. It's a nostalgic occasion for me to come back to this, this particular place where I was a 
a director of the HRC for around about 10 years. Um, one thing I'm going to correct is I'm not talking about my book. Uh, my book did not change humanity. Um, it was Darwin's. And in some senses, it's a tougher gig because my book is all about a kind of boy's own adventure, life of Darwin and his colleagues. And what I want to do for you today is to try and unpack the, the argument and the significance of On the Origin of Species. Um, I'm going to call it The Origin right through because it just gets tiresome going On the Origin. Okay, well, at various times in my longish career as a teacher, I've tried to persuade students to read Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, a book that has indisputably changed humanity since it was published on the 24th of November, 1859. But the responses I've had have generally been disappointing, especially amongst the most scientifically minded, surprisingly enough. It's supposed to be a game-changing book about evolution, uh, but he doesn't even mention the word, is a typical complaint. And why does he write in such a roundabout way? He floods us with a tsunami of detail about the hairiness of gooseberries and the tail feathers of pigeons. I can't see how it was so revolutionary. Well, two of Darwin's uh, most revolutionary contemporaries, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, had instantly seen the humanity-changing implications of Darwin's book. Marx had just published his corrosive anti-capitalist pamphlet, A Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy, a few months earlier than, the, than Darwin's book, in June 1859, and it had flopped. Nobody noticed it. In, in fact, Paul Marx had to write to the publisher and say, have you actually published it? <laughs> we know where he's coming from. <laughs> um, by contrast, Darwin's 500-page abstract, as he called it, costing more than an English workman's weekly wage, sold out within 24 hours. Marx and Engels both rejoiced that the origin had delivered a death blow to the idea of nature's divine purpose. Though they complained, they grumbled about Darwin's crude and clumsy English style of argument. By this they meant that it was not a grand philosophical treatise in the German manner. Instead, Darwin beguiled his readers with charm, writing his abstract in an amiable, unpretentious style, peppered with homely examples, as if he was a small farmer or a, or a gardener, chatting to well-meaning but rather misguided friends. And it's not hard to see why Darwin wrote The Origin in this way. He and Alfred Wallace had produced nearly identical papers on the theory of natural selection the previous year. And they'd read them at the London Linnaeus Society, or they had been read at the London Linnaeus Society. And no, again, it was rather like poor old Marx, nobody noticed. 
After the meeting, John Bell, the Society's president, reported that 1858 has not been marked by any of those discoveries which at once revolutionized the Department of Science in which they occurred. Neither was Darwin's hypothesis of evolution by natural selection the kind of scientific theory that could be proved by mathematical equations, philosophical dialectics, or repeatable experiments. Instead, it was, Darwin said, one long argument presented in the inductive scientific style that prevailed in the Britain of his day. Darwin might not be able to prove natural selection, but he could try to show enough persuasive evidence to make his theory seem more probable than any existing alternative. And that's exactly what he set out to do in The Origin of Species. Above all, he needed to convince all of his readers that the comforting natural theology of William Pally, uh, that Darwin himself had learnt and loved at Christ College, Cambridge, simply didn't hold up. Nature was not the product of a kind of supernatural Swiss designer watchmaker who'd crafted a beautiful and harmonious world for the benefit of mankind. Neither were species fixed and immutable creations that had been planted especially within suitable environments all around the world. No, Darwin claimed, species were generated by chance factors within material laws for no higher purpose than survival and procreation. And Darwin deliberately chose to send out this heretical thesis into the world in the form of a commercial book aimed at a general readership. Here was a revolution packaged in a way that Marx and Engels could never have contemplated. So I'd like then in this talk to outline first how and why and what Darwin argued in The Origin of Species in opposition to the scientific orthodoxies of his day. And secondly, to note some of the flaws in the book and the exceptional difficulties he faced in writing it. And finally, to suggest that both the form and the content of the origin can stand as a model for our times. Well, let's go through the book piece by piece. Darwin, the least combative of men, opens his book with the least controversial chapter. He simply reminds his readers of the very high incidence of birth varieties within domestic animals. And everyone, or very large numbers of people, have dogs and cats. Having taken notice of this phenomenon in his transmutation notebooks of the late 1830s, he then con begun conducting experiments of his own with domestic varieties of plants. And you can see his garden there at Down, um, which is actually re reproduced exactly as far as they know with the flowers that he used. This is the house he bought in 1842. Variation 
among plants and animals is normal, he contends. In fact, invariable. If you don't yourselves breed pigeons and you don't have your own garden, ask any farmer, dog breeder or horticulturist. Whenever animals or plants procreate, they generate tiny variations, which breeders often deliberately select then and build on in, for the purpose of developing new forms that they find pleasing or more profitable or more useful. Think of the chihuahua and the wolf, for example, and they are a product of breeders. All of the many exotic pigeon breeds, for example, including fantails, tumblers and pouters, are descended from one original species, a wild dove called Columbia livia. Indeed, the famous breeder, Sir John Sebright, boasted that he could produce any given type and colour of feather within three years and any new beak and head within six well, Darwin didn't know exactly what caused these continual variations or mutations, as we call them, but he produced a deluge of examples to show that they happened. And here are his pigeons. All varieties of a single species. All naturalists likewise knew, he said, that similar variations occur among wild animals, insects, birds and plants. People sometimes wonder why Charles Darwin devoted eight long years of his life to poring over the squishy innards of barnacles, a more desperate and boring project one couldn't imagine. But he did this in part to gain recognition as a true scientist rather than just a clever amateur adventurer. But still more, in order to map the myriad variations and specialisations that these barnacles generated, these extraordinarily understudied sea creatures. Well, scientists of Darwin's day admitted the existence of variations in nature, both in wild and in domestic circumstances. But they thought them unimportant. There were said to be slight and temporary imperfections of the archetypal designs in the mind of God, which God had also designed to disappear with further breeding so that mutations, these variations, would just vanish. They had no significance. By contrast, species remained forever fixed and mutable. That was the orthodoxy of the day. Yet, argued Darwin in his next chapter, it's often extremely difficult in practice to determine what is a species and what is a variety. How entirely vague and arbitrary is the distinction between species and varieties, he wrote. The whole business was mired in ambiguity. He and the famous ornithologist John Gould had experienced immense difficulties distinguishing between species and varieties among the differing beaks and feathers and shapes of dozens of finches that Darwin had collected within and between adjacent islands in the Galapagos. Um, and let's have a look at Darwin's finches. 
These big variations, Darwin argued, were not simply blips in the mind of God. They reflected real, tangible and functional differences and uses. Some beak shapes were suited to catch insects, some to digging out seeds, some to pulling off berries, some to eating cactus, and so on. They had started out, each of them as variations, and isolated on these islands, they became species. But how? Well, having given a vigorous shake to the fundamental scientific orthodoxy that species and varieties were utterly different, Darwin moved to discuss the formative role of what he called the conditions of existence. All individuals and species, he argued, are engaged in a desperate struggle to survive and to procreate. Malthus, Thomas Robert Malthus, had used economic arithmetic in 1798 to show this characteristic of human populations. Far from being serene and harmonious, all nature is war, one organism with another, or with external matter, wrote Darwin. Malthus' thesis is quite simple. Human beings reproduce at a geometric rate, but food resources and habitats are finite. Populati population growth always tends to outstrip available food and space. Was it not for the fact that the weakest or the least well-adapted of species always perish, argued Darwin, the entire planet would be overrun with seething swarms of animal life, birds, insects. Every conceivable creature would overrun us. Among human populations, Malthus had suggested, plagues, wars, vice and earthquakes helped to keep this rampant population in balance. Among wild creatures, Darwin said, it was comp competition and predation that did this job. Well, at this point, Darwin arrives at the hinge of his theory. It's an analogy between artificial selection methods used by breeders and the selection methods of the laws of nature, a system that both eliminates old species and creates new ones. Given the condition of perpetual struggle, he says, chance variations will give some individuals adaptive advantages for survival over others. You might have a stronger arm or a longer beak or longer legs, you just if these adaptive advantages are passed on from generation to generation, they will gradually, gradually increase and they will give you a better and better chance of surviving and breeding. Hence, you're being, in effect, doing the equivalent of, domestic, of a domestic breeder, but it is happening naturally in, in the world of nature. This sets in motion a process that accentuates adaptations until these eventually produce new species. To use Darwin's own admittedly very anthropomorphic words, it may be said that natural selection 
is daily and hourly scrutinising throughout the world. Every variation, even the slightest. Rejecting that which is bad, preserving and adding up all that is good. Silently and insensibly working whenever and whatever opportunity offers. Darwin stresses, however, that natural selection proceeds with extreme slowness, similar to the almost imperceptible changes in geology that had been so brilliantly described by his friend, Charles Lyell. Natural selection, Darwin says, possesses another crucial characteristic that demands a full separate chapter in his book. This he calls the principle of divergence, which holds that natural selection will also lead to a widening divergence between varieties, species, genera, a process that helps to explain the extraordinary biodiversity in our world. It's a process of increasing biodiversity that arises out of natural selection. And this is because in conditions of competition and struggle, finding specialised niches that are distinctive from other people, from other animals, will enable more and different kinds of creatures to coexist in a common area without eliminating each other. It makes sense when you think about it. This doesn't matter whether we're living in a forest, a desert, a pond, an island, a barrier reef. Indeed, Darwin had himself in his garden investigated a little patch of earth about three foot by four foot to see what species were there. Uh, he, came, he came up with 20 different species within this area of his garden, representing 18 different genera and eight different orders. In fact, a kind of incredible... Orchestra of different and divergent creatures in this tiny space. Darwin had actually visited the great exhibition of 1851 with his kids and noticed the incredible diversification and specialisation of skills that underpinned Britain's Industrial Revolution. And he later recalled the exact moment that the idea of divergence had come to him. He was riding in his coach, um, going, through, uh, going through the village of Down on his way home. And he suddenly thought of the numerous specialised skills that had gone into making the mechanism and decoration of the coach he was riding in. This was not the, the, the production of one person. It was the production of a whole variety of highly specialised people who'd been able to be a kind of factory for the production of coaches. And he's using this analogy in nature. Well, to explain the principle of divergence, Darwin here also offers us the only visual illustration in his book. It's a spider, I'll show it to you in a minute. It's a spidery, almost childish tree of life drawn by Darwin himself, and he couldn't draw. <laughs> Modern readers often wonder 
why Darwin used no scienti other scientific illustrations in The Origin. Forgetting that the prevailing tenor of scientific illustrations of his day would tell exactly the wrong story by reflecting the orthodox ideas of divine design, immutable species, and a harmonious natural order. The illustrator John Gould, for example, produced a book of bird illustrations to counter Darwin's views. He was critical of them. And he deliberately shows these cute little nuclear families of birds, daddy, mummy, and baby birds, cheeping happily together in a cosy nest. There's no whiff of nature red in tooth and claw here. And this is the, this is the kind of prevailing illustrations that Darwin would have had to draw on in some way. You can see... Um, I think I've... You can see here, I think, how this is T.H. Huxley's famous this sort of evolution of man, where he's trying to create a kind of active cartoon in order to demonstrate in his illustrations evolution, movement, change, something that is not static and permanent like the illustrations that he would have had to draw on otherwise. So, to convey a visual understanding of the principle of divergence, this is Darwin's spidery tree of life. And it certainly doesn't um, grab you. <laughs> he needed an illustration that would show change and transmutation over time and space, something we can easily do now with using film, video, CPI, and so on. Any number of, of programs you'll see that can show evolution in practice, in movement. He had no such opportunity. And in the absence of these, his tree of life, however clumsily drawn, nevertheless provides a potent metaphor and a, and a familiar living thing people understand in the form of a historical map of species. This was a tree of time and in no way divine. The great tree of life which fills with its dead and broken branches the crust of the earth and covers the surface with its every branching and beautiful ramifications. Well, it needs to be deconstructed. The, the faint... The, so, let's start at A to L at the bottom this is the beginning, indicate the species of a large genus living in a particular geographical region. Okay, we start out there. The fainter dotted lines that, that arc up in a divergent model are showing variations springing from A to I. They show offspring with slight varieties kind of forking out in this way. Each of, the, each of the horizontal lines uh, represents a, a, a thousand or more generations. So we're dealing with a very deep time here. When the dotted and hor horizontal lines actually intersect, the varieties have reached a point where they're well marked. 
by the 10,000th generation, and we get right there, A, the original A, you see there, has evolved into three different species. And the original species A has become extinct, as has B, C, and D. So this is Darwin's illustration. Later, uh, when he did his book on the descent of man, he, um, he quite ingeniously, I think, used actors to show, to project the, the dynamic uh, features of people, of, of human beings. So it was his, his need. He was, he was actually really needing to invent the movie camera in order to be able to tell his story. <coughs> unable to do that, um, this is what he has to try and do to explicate the story. Well, to conclude the first half of his book, Darwin now offers his readers a, a something that you very rarely will find, an interlude for reflection. He basically says, all right, you know, you've followed me so far, uh, and I know you must have some serious difficulties with what I've been saying. That's it. Um, and I imagine you've noticed these, I better talk about them and show them to you. These same difficulties have troubled him um, and he offers at least partial answers to his, his critics to be. He concedes, for example, that there are glaring absences in the fossil record to kind of prove his story of evolution. Um, in particular, these intermediate forms, the, the moments when a species comes into being, when it moves from one uh, a type of variation into a kind of fixed species, we now call it often the missing link. The missing links were, uh, are not obvious and not um, frequent. He points out that they do turn up occasionally, as in the case of this a feathered bird-like reptile, Archaeopteryx, uh, found in the, Solf, uh, in the Solhofen limestones of Germany. Uh, it's basically a, a dinosaur with feathers. Uh, and it is, it is one of those very rare moments when a fossil captures the transition of one species into another. But, Darwin argues, these linking species will be rare and incredibly hard to find. Recovering them will be like finding needles in a haystack. His own chance discoveries of a cache of, of fossils jutting out of an earthen bank at Bahia Blanca in Argentina when he was on the Beagle were a case in point. It was complete chance. Actually, a sailor pointed them out. What's that sticking out of the bank? as they were going down, and they pulled it out, and he finds these fossils. And he then moves on to what is really the most difficult thing for him to defend in the, in the thesis of natural selection, and this is what he calls transitional structures. They presented his theory with the greatest challenge, and one that he confessed sometimes made him shudder uh, with, with terror. 
Not surprisingly, these transitional structures are used again and again in contemporary, um, in contemporary arguments. They're part of the armory of modern-day anti-evolutionists. How could Darwin explain the adaptive survival of complex structures like the human eye before it achieved its full potential? I mean, how could the human eye evolve over hundreds of thousands of years if it, if at, if it at that time when it's moving, you know, when it's evolving and being passed down, you, it couldn't even focus an image? I mean, what would be its use? Why would a human eye, and how could a human eye evolve? And that's a classic <coughs> uh, thing that you will, be, you will be asked, and maybe I'll be asked it today. I've certainly been asked it whenever I've talked about Darwin in America. <laughs> <laughs> and why, for example, too, would a wing-like protuberance on a bird, you know, it's kind of a, a, a these wingless birds with these, these little sort of, things that stick out, why would it have been passed down before it was aerodynamic and actually enabled the bird to fly? Surely such early and useless variations would not be selective. They'd disappear because they possess no obvious adaptive value. It's a very tough question. And it's typical of Darwin because, I mean, one thing I want to say about Darwin is that he constantly, constantly tried to defeat his own thesis. If he, could, if he came up with, if somebody came up with anything that looked as though it was going to defeat his thesis, he would jump on it with glee because he wanted to be absolutely sure that it was right. And far from trying to make it work, he was trying to make it fail half the time. So what does he do? He responds with two different answers to himself. <laughs> First he points out, look, tra transitional forms actually do still possess adaptive advantage. It may not be the great one that you have with a focused eye. Um, he, th he gives the example of the membranes that extend from the body of a flying squirrel or the fins of a flying fish that enable it to shoot you know, considerable distances through the air. These are not fully grown wings, but they still have an adaptive value. They still enable the species to survive, or the variation to survive, better than um, others. And the same holds true for rudimentary forms of the eye. Even in its early beginning point, as an optic nerve coated with pigment. And he, um, these are the various primitive forms of the eye. And again, much of Darwin's detailed um, argumentation of this depends on him having done the, that eight years of deep, deep uh, analysis of barnacles. Secondly, Darwin's study of barnacles reveals something even more extraordinary about transitional structures, that they can actually change their adaptive properties in midstream in a kind of opportunistic way. For example, he found, he found that a swim bladder that was uh, initially developed uh, for floating 
for the creature to float had become over time uh, switched to become a prototype lung for breathing. It starts off as a swim bladder, but it, but it, it mutates in the direction of becoming a lung because it enables, it starts to enable the creature to survive better than those that are trying to eat or kill it. Well, here in the second half of the book, Darwin also switches his own strategy. Now he describes not the theory of evolution, but how evolution has actually occurred within scientific spheres. And each of these that he, that he uses meshes his theory of natural selection to a very, very important related concept that we would take utterly for granted, and that is the idea that species will have descended from a common ancestor. I mean, we just assume that. You know, there has been an ancestor, the species have evolved from it. Naturalists, uh, for example, who'd worked uh, in the important field of biogeography, people like Alfred Wallace, had noticed the clustering of particular groups of animals in particular areas, such as zebras in, in Africa and nowhere else, kangaroos and wallabies in Australia and New Guinea, nowhere else, lemurs in Madagascar and the surrounding islands, nowhere else. Such clusterings, Darwin says, are best explained by a process of descent through modification, which he means by which he means evolution, from common ancestors. It seems to us a no-brainer. These animal groups have clustered like this because they have a deep organic bond in space and time. They would have all originated from one ancestor. Paleontology reveals a similar kind of clustering over space and time, which is why in continents like South America and Australia, one finds clear ancestral links between fossil bones and existing animals. And Darwin's fossils that he found in Bahia Blanca came from giant species that nevertheless resemble living forms of tapirs and, and pangolins, anteaters, in the same area. Morphology, the study of an anatomical shape and design, Darwin says, is likewise much more plausibly explained by natural selection from a common ancestor than by the whims and uh, vagaries of a designer god. Natural historians like Darwin's great rival, Richard Owen, had long been aware of what they, he called homologous, homologous structures, such as the five-digit pattern of the human hand and the five-digit pattern you can find in the wings of a bat, and so on. You can find this in, uh, over and over again, these, these structures. Owen explained this as God's desire to be frugal. Don't waste, you've got a digital structure, use it wherever you can. Owen actually assumed, though, that the underlying unity of forms that existed, or what we call structural resemblances among species, came from their, their having been an original 
archetypal design in the mind of God. And, they, and this was, as it were, the, the Ur species. It never actually existed as a tangible thing. It's something in God's mind. Um, and this is... Uh, oh, these are the, these are the v variations of homologous structures. And here's the archetype um, that Owen produces of a whole variety of different um, vertebrate skeletons, which... This is God's design, and then uh, the creatures are then, as it were, created as variations of that design. This is imagine God, God as a kind of architect with a blueprint. This is the blueprint. Of course, Darwin's argument is that the common structural patterns are evidence of a shared ancestral form. Owen worked with metaphysics, Darwin worked with history. Well, having taken his readers on a long and, as he admitted, not always easy journey, Darwin dares in his short conclusion to the book to predict, modest man though he was, that his theory, at least as he says in the hands of other people, will have revolutionary implications for the future. It will, it will bring about, he said, a considerable revolution in natural history. And he foreshadows some of these future implications. One of them, he said, is, is it will lead people to explore psychology, to tr try and trace the origins of mental powers in humans and in animals, uh, which is, of course, what, what we're still doing, using um, natural selection as one of the tools. And he also makes his one coy mention of natural selection's possible implications for the origins and evolution of humans, a subject he carefully avoided in the book uh, up to now because he, he just felt he was not yet ready to take it on. He hadn't got the evidence to prove it. And it wasn't until 1872 with his Descent of Man that he takes that, that particular subject on. In 1859, Darwin was still sufficiently theistic, sufficiently a believer in, or at least willing to admit the possibility of a, a god of some sort, to allow that some creator might have generated the fixed laws of the universe. But he was unyielding in his insistence that God took no part in the operation of these laws on earth, or in heaven for that matter. The production and the extinction of past and present inhabitants of the world was due solely to laws such as the operation of gravity, the movement of heat. Yet he insists, and I think this is one of the things that makes him so special, he insists that, look, there's nothing arid or prosaic or lesser about this idea. There's a grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, having originally been breathed into a few forms or into one. And that while this planet has gone on cycling uh, according to fixed laws of gravity, in so simple a beginning, endless forms, 
most beautiful and most wonderful have been evolved. Of course there are flaws in the book, as Darwin himself knew very well. He does not and could not at this time advance an explanation uh, of the mechanics of genetic inheritance. Nobody up to that time had managed to, to read or uh, understand the work done on peas by Mendel, the, the, um, the priest. Darwin did try to attempt a genetic explanation, but it wasn't uh, very satisfactory, and it didn't even satisfy his most ardent disciple, Thomas Huxley. He also very deliberately evades any discussion of how life actually began on Earth. He doesn't talk about primal soup or you know, creatures emerging out of the bog or anything like that. He just assumes we start from the existence of animals, plants and birds. He wasn't going to get caught up in that one. There's no doubt, I uh, don't know if any of you or how many of you have read the book, it is dense in places. No doubt, as my talk is as well. Uh, and this is partly because Darwin forced into it materials that he accumulated for a much, much larger and definitive book that was to be called Natural Selection. It was a work in progress. Uh, he'd begun it in 1856, um, and my guess is he might never have finished it. Throughout the origin, he complains of not having enough space to include all the evidence he's collected. Uh, in this tiny abstract of 500 pages. <laughs> in reality, of course, he was worried less about lack of space than about lack of time. He was driven by raw fear that Alfred Wallace might again preempt him, and it drove Darwin to write his 500-page abstract in 13 months. And when you think that is a man who often could only work two hours a day because of his kind of chronic illnesses. It's an extraordinary achievement. Some of Darwin's closest friends were actually relieved that Wallace had given him such a jolt. Hooker commented in a letter of 1859, I'm all the more glad that you've published in this form for the three volumes of natural selection, unprefaced by this abstract, would have choked any naturalist in the 19th century. <laughs> Darwin was afraid much less, actually, of religious opposition than he was afraid of scientific disdain by his peers. It's not really religious opposition that made him delay for 20 years publishing. It was because he believed that he hadn't got a sufficiently persuasive case for the scientists of his day. But he could easily have gone on piling up, piling up evidence uh, until he died. And uh, I mean, those of us who've supervised PhDs know that, you know, the drive for perfection and comprehensiveness is also often fatal to production. <laughs> Darwin himself described, as he was writing the natural selection, despairingly as him, as I, I, I'm like Croesus, overwhelmed by my riches in facts. 
But if he had published his three huge tomes rather than the origin, they would never have proved as user-friendly for general readers. It was the desire to persuade non-specialists that gave Darwin his unique voice. So mild, so friendly, so free of preaching or bullying or using unnecessary technical language. This was a book that took for granted the intelligence of the common person and their willingness to, to take on one of the most difficult and challenging ideas that's ever come out of the human mind. Modern scientists complain rightly of the immense difficulty of persuading the public to believe in the reality of anthropogenic, uh, anthropogenic global warming. But think how much more difficult was Darwin's task. He even lacked a neutral scientific language to work with. The language that he used, the language of Shakespeare and Milton, was threaded through with God, the designer God, in every syllable. Even the word selection implied a kind of conscious choice and agency, and he didn't want that idea that nature was being kind of manipulated by some conscious being. He wished later, he said, that he'd used the term natural preservation. Sounds a bit flaccid, doesn't it? He couldn't even use the word evolution in the book because in the 1850s, evolution meant the unfolding of hidden embryological structures. So that was its technical meaning. So if he used the word evolution, it would have completely, um, you know, sort of slanted or caused misjudgments of what he was saying. And however amiable his tone, the implications of what he said were explosive, almost beyond imagination explosive. He was not simply questioning the account of Genesis in the Bible. Ironically, fundamentalism of that kind was far less frequent in, the, in Victorian Britain than it is today in Australia or America. But what Darwin was doing, as his great biographer Janet Brown says, was expelling the divine completely from the Western world. By denying that God had a hand in creating all creatures, humans or ants or worms, he was throwing into question everything that had been thought about living beings up until his time. Many, too, thought that he was undermining the very basis of human morality, offering in its place only a gloomy materialist recipe of struggle, violence, blood and chance. His old geological mentor, Adam Sedgwick, sniffed the heresy in the book and hated it. He called the origin a dish of rank materialism, cleverly cooked and served up. <laughs> and even some of Darwin's closest friends and allies, like Asa Gray in America at Harvard and Charles Lyell in England, felt unable to give up God altogether in the way that Darwin's theory seemed to demand. They held to a theistic belief because they couldn't face the brutal reality, as David Quarman bluntly puts it, 
that humans were only temporarily animated meat. <laughs> Fortunately for him, Darwin would not live to experience the two generations of demolition work done to his theory of natural selection after his death in 1882. Scientists from America especially, using Gregor Mendel's pioneering work on genetics and inheritance, dynamited natural selection. And for two, for, for, for maybe 50 years, it was regarded as a blown theory. But in the longer term, as in his theory of, brilliant theory of coral reefs, old Darwin was proved to be right. During the 1940s, a brilliant cross-disciplinary group of scientists finally unified and synthesised Mendelian genetics with Darwinian natural selection. Had he been alive, Darwin would have been overjoyed, rejoiced that Julian Huxley, a grandson of his fierce disciple Thomas Huxley, led this process of redemption. And this modern synthesis, as it's called, is still what broadly prevails today in modern science. It uses material causes to explain material effects. Yet materialistic as his theory was, Darwin's description of life's origins and struggles has the power to reach the deepest wells of our emotion and imagination when you read the book. Think of his famous metaphor of the tangled bank. He talks about how natural selection can produce an entangled bank of plants and bushes, a metaphor that filled Darwin with delight and wonder every day because he passed one, this a living process of nature, as he went on his daily walks. When we look at the plants and bushes clothing, clothing an entangled bank, we're tempted to attribute their proportional numbers and kinds to what we call chance. But how false of you this is. Everyone has heard that when an American forest is cut down, a very different vegetation springs up. But it has been observed that the trees now growing in the ancient Indian mounds in the southern United States display the same beautiful diversity and proportion of kinds as in the surrounding virgin forests. What a struggle between the several different kinds of trees must have gone on during the long centuries, each annually scattering its seeds by the thousand. What war between insect and insect, between insects, snails and other animals, with birds and beasts of prey, all striving to increase and all feeding on each other or on the trees or on their seeds and seedlings or on the other plants which first clothed the ground and thus checked the growth of the trees. Throw up a handful of feathers and all must fall to the ground according to definite laws. But how simple is this problem compared to the action and reaction of the innumerable plants and animals that have determined in the course of centuries the proportional numbers and kinds of trees now growing on those old Indian ruins. Of course, there are still many people 
especially in America, who utterly reject the idea of species evolution at all, let alone of Darwin's godless machinery of natural selection. A New York Times poll of November 2005 found that 55% of respondents believed that God had created human beings in their exact present form. And I suspect this figure would be higher if a similar poll was taken to today in the ludicrous kingdom of Donald Trump. <laughs> in contrast, we don't really know the total numbers of the origins sold because so many editions were pirated, especially in America. Uh, so really, no one has ever put together a kind of uh, index of all the different versions of the origin of species. A checklist uh, that I saw published back in 1970 recorded nearly 500 separate editions in print. Editions, not versions in print. In a major online survey last year, voted the origin the most influential academic book in the history of the world. And I remain a passionate advocate of the genre that Darwin used to present his theory. I believe we still need today to publish our pressing scientific and social arguments in accessible commercial forms. We would have a better chance of persuading resistant publics about the scientific truth of anthropogenic global warming, for example, if we could find a scientist of Darwin's ability and stature and humility to present the case in the shrewd and congenial style of the origin. All of our enormous accretions of data and our powerful uh, computational tools have had little success in, in persuading sceptical publics of the truth of climate change. Of course, specialisation of work is very important. It's an important way to advance knowledge. And it certainly allows us to maximise the number of academic niches in any given university. <laughs> but over-specialisation can be disabling because it limits our capacity to reach the general public. Few of us would dare today to spend a lifetime working to achieve a holistic gra grasp of a massive, complex, global problem like climate change. And fewer still would know how to write an origin style of book to persuade general readers of its importance and its ideas. This, I fear, is not an example of progressive evolution, but rather of sad regression. If we really want to change humanity, I believe we have to write another book like The Origin of Species. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.